Welcome, everyone. Good evening. Nice to be with you. Wonder Ryan, you're here. I was wondering where you were. Mother's not coming tonight. Father too. Okay. And you're here with your sangha. From you're here with your sangha, your group, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, from that Asheville side there, you have a little a little preaching center there, right? Oh, okay. Good for us. Oh, good. Yes, where is he now? He's in Texas, in Texas. Okay. Yeah, rural property there, right? Yeah. 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 Cow farm and right. Yeah. I sent some cows there once. You did? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Some miniature cows, yeah. Nice. And what's your name? River. River, nice to meet you. Okay. Yeah, I remember you told me last night you had a new friend named River. Yeah. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. How are you? Very good. Blessings. Are you to stay in this area? We just moved back, actually. Huh. Uh, Good for me. <laughs> We're happy to be back, and hopefully we maybe invite you over again sometime. Yeah, yeah, it was nice when I visited you. Same place? Uh, actually, we we got a really cool place with, with land over in uh, near Asheville. Oh. So, um, yeah. Okay. So good. Uh, yeah, everybody else I know and have welcomed already. So uh, I wanted to, uh, as you know, those of you here, those of you who were here last night, open the uh, floor, if you will, for questions. But we got um, a little involved in the discussion of the texts, four or five texts that come at the end of the 15th chapter of the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam, which starts a new uh, subject from what um, had been discussed uh, previously in the chapter, the 15th chapter, the 10th canto, is the center, as I mentioned last night, of the center of the Bhagavatam that deals with the sacred rapture of fraternal love. Sakiras or Maitri, Preo Bhakti, these are different names by which it is referred to by the Goswamis, Krishna Das Kaviraj, Jiva Goswami, Rupa Goswami, respectively. <clears throat> they mean the same thing, different words for friend. And as we discussed last night, and I've mentioned before on a number of occasions, the Bhagavatam is uh, special in that its intention is it's written uh, with the perp for the express purpose of acquainting us with the um, uh, sentiments that, dr that drive the lila of Krishna in in uh, the rural setting of Braj. Lila we have been discussing, and since I've come to North Carolina, I was previously a few days back or last weekend, and I 
Chapel Hill area we have where we have a good number of devotees as well. Um, and so from there and to here we've been discussing the nature of Leela. It's a, a word that many of you <coughs> are familiar with and some of you uh, may, may not be. Um, already given a couple lectures on the word <laughs> and there's much more to be said. I don't want to do that again tonight, but uh, very briefly, of course, um, uh, Leela means play, it's the play of consciousness, if you will, um, expressing itself as uh, uh, theatrically. This is how the great uh, Sridhar Swami from ancient times, famous commentator on the sacred text, the Bhagavatam, has described Lila. <clears throat> the implication being that while consciousness is often depicted as still by different um, spiritual traditions from the Hindu side, from the schools of Vedanta, um, Shankar is Advaita Vedanta, in which the Atma, or the Self of all of us, is wholly identified with the, with the, uh, with a singular, all-pervasive Self, Brahman. That doctrine is similar, uh, similar to Buddhism, and different, but but similar and quite similar to some schools of Buddhism. It's uh, largely taught in a diverse number of Buddhist traditions that there is no self, anatma. And Buddha was silent on the theological question, is there God? But some schools of Buddhism take the emphasis of the Buddha on no self to be more uh, provisional and a strategy, if you will, in his teaching. The strategy goes something like this. We are ourselves suffering in material existence because of attachment. And that attachment, which we could describe as my, the sense of mine, my forms an I. An I comes out of my. I mean, they're obviously related. <laughs> there can't be a my without an I. So my country, my gender, my um, family and friends, so on and so forth, all these senses of my have a corresponding sense of I. And because all that we think is mine, all that I think is mine, isn't really mine. 
I can't keep, doesn't belong to me, I don't have ultimate control over it, it's illusory, it's, to use a phrase, it's overused, but not used enough, here today and gone tomorrow. It has to sink in. <laughs> it's worth repeating. So, all that I think is mine appears to be so today, but tomorrow it will change hands. That which uh, I am deriving pleasure from because I have acquired it is only beginning to cause me distress because my attachment to it will remain even though it will pass. So there's an I, a sense of I that corresponds with the my, right? My country, so I am in a particular way and so forth. So this is um, um, the basic problem of samsara, the basic problem of material existence. So the Buddha said, the trishna, the thirst for things, is the cause of suffering. And detachment from things, then, this will uh, end the suffering, right? So, the detachment from things, from the sense of my, involves a, really a dismantling, if you will, of the I. It's going to be done away with, right? But to do it voluntarily. Hmm. To to be aware of it, do it. Hmm. So, so the death, the ego death, if you will, metaphysical ego death. You have to have a good and healthy psychological ego to kill your metaphysical ego. The two are not the same. Hmm. Um, important point, as an aside, but. That's a big task to uh, to uh, to slay the ego. It's open hunting season, twenty-four-seven. Yeah, and the weapons. Some weapons are given to you in the different uh, ego-effacing spiritual uh, traditions. But it's such a big task, and at its heart, that false I and our attachments being the cause of suffering. Buddha thought, let's just leave it at that. Hmm? Provisional. Focus on slaying the I and ending all suffering. We know there's suffering. We can practically experience it, that it derives from attachment. We have no attachments. We have no worries. Hmm? Nothing to do. You have no, no no burdens, no obligations, right? We we can practically experience on a, in daily life if we look carefully. Our attachments are the cause of our our suffering. So very sensible, very logical. We don't need to refer to sacred texts and so forth. Although the idea comes from Upanishads, the Buddha was a Hindu. That's for sure. I mean, from his birth, he lived across the. Hindu's river, which was referred to by some as the Hindu Hindus, that's where the name said to have come from. So, of course, some things were going on in Hinduism which were problematic, which happens in any religious tradition. Misrepresentation of it, not a full understanding of it, a partial understanding of it, 
can be worse than no understanding at all. Half truth may be worth worse than no truth at all. Hmm? So to think that performing sacrifices to acquire things, a longer life, uh, a better life, and so forth, is the essence of the sacred texts of the Hindus would be mistaken. In other words, to try to mitigate bad karma by collecting good karma is hardly a solution to the real problem that karma presents, which is, as long as you've got it, good or bad, you're in samsara. You've got to take birth and die again, birth and die again, which is the bigger problem. So there was a large contingent of the Hindu sector, which would be the largest sector, just like in any religious tradition. Your largest sector is the sector that doesn't understand the tradition and often misrepresents it, understands it more in a literal sense than in a, in a deeper philosophical sense, and, and uses it, the religious tradition, which is meant ultimately to do away with the ego at its heart, and, um, among other things, to, to further my position in this world. So, to uh, uh, expose that as a shortcoming, he just dismissed listening to the Vedas. Of course, that's not a comprehensive understanding of the Vedas, but it was the large, uh, it was a large contingent of it, apparently, that he, he, he sought to deal with in this way. He came up with his own doctrine, and it's uh, really Upanishadic in, in, in a sense. But, hmm, the point is, he said, with regard to the self, that's not, we don't talk about it. No self. When he says no self, he's referring to that false I. It really doesn't exist, it's false. It's not enduring. No self, no self. But as far as to say after that, but along with the fact that there's no self, there is a self. It starts to get a little confusing. If I say to you the world of names and forms, forms come and go and we name them. What is the significance of all that? It's just a human construct, right? It's not really helping us to get at the nature of reality and its naked uh, form. So, uh, good. Maybe we can digest that. But then if I start telling you, but that there are forms that are eternal, it starts with like, we were getting to a big place, no form. Now it sounds like we're going to a more provincial place. Mm-hmm. Of course, so, so that's a little bit of a, a more complex philosophically and theologically, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it, he, uh, there's a contingent within the Buddhism that thought he didn't want to bother to go there, just to emphasize this. And if you can actually slay the ego, well, who did the slaying will become clear. Hmm? So, 
when we, in, when we, in that sector of Buddhism, we find a description of consciousness is very akin to what Shankar, the uh, founder of the Dvaita Vedanta doctrine, um, speaks about when he speaks about consciousness. A universal mind, and we're all it, but don't know it, something like that. Hmm? So now, you know, we go from there, of course, there are other forms of uh, Vedanta, but in but in but in the in the in the Buddhist conception here, or as I'm describing it, um, and another thing to consider as well, I suppose, worth mentioning, um, that um, if you say, as a Buddhist, the idea of a, a real self is is false and is 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 for, is the cause of your problems. Hmm? Well, okay, but then you have to compare notes with Shankar and other mystics who say there is a self beyond the small self. And if Buddhism is to be pluralistic, rather than dismissing all the other mystic traditions that uh, speak of a self, then it has to be the kind of Buddhism that I'm speaking about, that it, that, it, that also accepts the self, but doesn't talk about it, for pragmatic reasons of just focusing the student on slaying the false ego. Do you follow? Yeah. Hmm? Otherwise, you want to deny the, the mysticism and enlightenment of the Christ, Chaitanya, uh, Rumi, hmm? They're all saying there's a self, in some measure, beyond the false self. You may dismiss them and say, no, there's no self, they're all wrong. they're an illusion, therefore they're suffering, but they're not suffering, is the point, right? They, you want to share, compare notes between the Buddha and Shankar. You're not going to find uh, one is suffering, the other is not. So, um, in the... We, we're speaking about kind of a, I would say, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but a rudimentary sense of uh, the nature of, of consciousness. Hmm. Because if I identify this, the, 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 the higher self, let's say, with a universal mind, the, the Hindus use the term Brahman, hmm, all one, Right? All pervasive consciousness everywhere. Then, for the consciousness, there's no movement. If you're everywhere, there's no movement. So it's eternal stillness, right? And stillness is is something that's that's um, that could be pretty good if you've been moving. Since a time without beginning, being chased by your own self. In other words, we are chasing others and the world we're taking from it, thinking ourselves to be the body we take 
from the environment to sustain ourselves. And, and just as we're taking, that taking that we're doing is causing someone to take from us. The taking that we do results, the hunting that we do results, if you look at the big picture, in being hunted. The hunters are being hunted. That's the implications of the realm of karma. That kind of movement, well, just to be still and know there's no one over my shoulder coming after me. You could sit for a long while if you consider how long you've been running, hunting, and being hunted. <laughs> how long? There's no counting to that. It's anadi, without beginning, in the cyclical sense of time from the East, there's no beginning. It's a beautiful thing, the cyclic. Because you can't, if I ask you which comes first, the seed or the tree? From a linear perspective, you can't answer the question. But from a cyclical perspective, you can. The answer is both. Or it could be neither one. So to sit still and for a long time, how long? Well, forever. Hmm? This is, again, a basic idea of consciousness. You've arrived at peace. You were in the war zone. Now you've arrived at peace. Hmm? But if we're bold enough to say, what about love? Hmm? Oh, I don't know about that. That's Gordon Guire's movement. <laughs> but those who are in that orbit, hmm, as though, uh, uh, as much as, uh, although, even though it has ups and downs, you can't get off the roller coaster. It's too exciting compared to the boredom of just sitting there. I'll try it. And has it heights. <laughs> so, love. Hmm? That means now we're talking about Leela. Movement in transcendence. Hmm? And in this pr perspective, then, that individual self is not entirely, absolutely one with the universal, let's say, self, with Brahman. It's like Brahman. We say, if there's anything in this world that resembles God, what is it? Most resembles God. What re most resembles God in this world? I'll give you the answer. It's, it's us. Hmm? Consciousness. Meaning. Purpose. Value. Hmm? Um, that which gives value to things. Hmm? Uh, so the unit of consciousness, like a ray of the sun, is, well, it's like the sun, but it's not the sun. It's one thing to say, well, go sit in the room over there where the sun is. What he means is, obviously, sit in the rays of the sun. Recently, there was just a huge explosion on that planet, if you want to call it. I don't know if you heard about it, but you wouldn't want to sit there. 
unless you are made of fire, you can't really go there. Hmm? But you can bask in the rays at some distance, right? So the rays are the sun, and what else are they? They're not the sun. Hmm? So an example is there hmm? to help us. The, let me give another example. The rays of the sun hmm, could be covered by clouds. The sun could produce clouds from the water and cover itself so that its rays don't shine below the cloud. And we say, the sun's not out today. Hmm? What's really happening is the clouds are out clouding our vision of the sun, but the sun is shining very brightly. Hmm? Right? So the illusion that we're in, hmm, in a broader sense, obviously it has its origins in the Godhead, not that he made a bad world, that, that's a crude way of looking at it. Let's not go into that whole subject, that's another big topic, but the clouds, if you will, of illusion are one Shakti of Bhagawan, hmm, of Godhead, and we are one. And let's give another example. Let's say there's a fire, and the fire has smoke, sparks, heat, and light. Right? So the spar- the smoke obscures light. It doesn't obscure the fire entirely, but it might obscure the fire for some, for sparks. Sparks might get lost in the smoke. Right? So in this analogy, one of the shaktis or powers of, 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 of the absolute is, is, the, is the smoke. Another one is the sparks. Hmm. So the illusory influence of the objective world, where things are here today and gone tomorrow, hmm. that's the maya shakti. Maya means illusion. The spark, that's us. We could get lost in the smoke. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, or the smoke could be removed, and and uh, we could be one with the fire, one in a sense. But it's one thing to have a fire, another thing to have a spark. You can't heat your room with a spark, and you can't cook with just a spark. In other words, it's just like the sun and rays example. In this analogy, we have the smoke, maya shakti, the, 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 the spark, the atma, or the jiva shakti, we also have heat and light, which is an energy of the fire. Hmm? Heat and light. Light here means luminosity. Hmm? Light is a uh, is a way of depicting knowing. Hmm? Light and heat, feeling, and it's and I don't want to say it, but well, you know, the feeling is. He's pretty hot, or whatever. <laughs> so he, so uh, it's uh, <laughs> take it, you know, to uh, affection to its extremity. We find romanticism, right? So Krishna is the fire. The God at Brahman, Brahman, Param Brahman, Bhagawan, the fire, and he has heat and light, which is so close to him, it's inseparable, mm. practically. That is his antaranga shakti, his swarup shakti, his internal potency. And that is what makes his lila go around, that movement in transcendence. 
it's making it's making it go around bhakti, which we engage in. This is constituted of that inner inner shakti. Hmm? That inner shakti is luminous and affectionate. It has feeling for us, and it's it's it it can bring about knowing in us in an extraordinary way. We can know the absolute on intimate terms. We're talking about something very big. We give an analogy of the sun. If you could know him personally, and he personified himself. I mean, it doesn't really fit between the ears, but you, the point is, in Leela, this becomes possible. Now you have to have the right conceptual orientation, which I'm trying to, you know, um, share with you, so that you can practice in such a way of getting out of samsara that you end up in Leela, rather than just resting and having peace, peace and love, both. So movement that is not hunting or being hunted, movement out of celebration, out of fullness, right? So it's a big, uh, big topic, big word, Leela, and we're discussing the Leelas of Krishna as they're um, described in, in the Bhagavad Purana, Srimad Bhagavatam, Srimad Bhagavatam Amalam Puranam Yadvaishnavanam Priyam. Of all the sacred texts of the Hindus, which there are quite a few, I think it's the most voluminous body of literature in the world, certainly of sacred uh, literature. Hmm. One might ask, what can you say about God? God is beyond words, beyond thought. So what's the use of the book? So many books. Hmm. It's true. God, ultimate reality, cannot be captured by word, by thought. Hmm. So someone will say, Swami, the truth is not in a book. (laughs) True. That's true in a sense. That's what the book says. Is that where you heard that? (laughs) The book says that. It says some other things, too, that would be helpful. Hmm. Uh, So don't just take one line. Hmm. Understand the implication of it. Yes, ultimate reality is beyond words, and that means there's not enough that we can say about it. Not that we can say nothing about it. Hmm. But if we have the capacity to speak, hmm, now we've touched on a topic that has no end. Not only has no end, but speaking about it can bring us closer to it, can attract him. I told the story the other day, a couple of my godbrothers, this was, this was like half a century ago, we were young, literally, we were young, and um, these two guys, uh, they went to a yogi who had, uh, in Santa Cruz, California, who had uh, taken a vow of silence, Mona Rutta, not to speak. And so they went to him, and 
and they said to him, he gave them darshan, and they said to him, our guru teaches that better than not speaking is to speak only about Krishna. And so he used to communicate by writing on a chalkboard. So he wrote back, is that what you do? <laughs> he was a pretty smart guy. <laughs> he, they thought they embarrassed him or something. They were going to go teach him. Were, yeah. So he, it's true what they said, but to do it is another thing. Hmm? Right? <laughs> so it's one thing to know what to do. I mean, most people don't know what to do. To know what to do is one thing. To do it, that's another thing. That's what's important. Hmm? And it's not really what you know that determines how learned you are, but how willing you are to learn. Hmm? That will determine. Because the subject, being the nature of reality, in that school, on that subject, we are all students forever. There is no graduation. Hmm? Leela has no end. Prem, love. Hmm? The prem of Radha is full, and what else? Ever-expanding. Now, that doesn't fit between the ears, but that's good that there are some things that uh, don't answer to the limits of reason. That tells us there are limits to reason. Use it. Hmm? But unto itself, it cannot, it cannot uh, bring you comprehensive knowing. If you use it in relation to this dispensation, for example, of sacred texts that are they're just, I mean, who's writing? These are the people who are only talking about God. They might be worth, worth listening to. And they're the ones who told us, my words aren't enough. And still they keep talking. Because there's not enough, you can say, about this subject, right? So in this school, with, with, in this classroom, then there's no, uh, we're all students forever. And, and that's good. Hmm. It means there's always room for growth. You might say, growth means something new. How can there be something new in eternity? If something's eternal, it has no beginning, it has no end. If something's new, that talks about a beginning in eternity. Yeah. There are things about eternity that we can't we can't quite understand. But 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 the beginning of eternity is the end of time. So there is a beginning. Hmm. Hmm. In Leela we're talking about the emotional life of God. Hmm. So you can say the emotions are all there, but they just and they're they're all there. They don't come out at the same time. Hmm. So they always knew New Leelas, there's room for you to enter into the Leela. That would be something new. Hmm. And it would have no end. Hmm. And can you trace out its beginning? Was it when you met me? Could it have been in a previous life? In a long, so many, where? Hmm. There's two currents in this world driving us. The current of karma, hmm? and there's the current of bhakti. There's no beginning to the world, there's no beginning to bhakti, there's no beginning to 
to Varma. So we're on a long road here, and now we're thinking about it, we're realizing it, talking about it. Hmm? So it's getting interesting. Right? Now, now we can we can we can focus on it. This is the idea. Hmm? So uh, that's it. We've been discussing about the lila from the 15th chapter. This is a chapter, as I said, that describes what's called Pogunda, or the, like the boyhood of Krishna. Here the Godhead is depicted as a young, as a young uh, herdsman. Hmm? That's a long, uh, big subject most of you are familiar with to some extent, right? Um, but again, uh, let me emphasize here, while we're st it starts to sound provincial and small, hmm? because if I say to you, no, no, you are the universal mind, there is no, there is no form, it starts to get real spacious, like, wow, it's big. No form. Form is limiting, right? Form is limiting. Is it? What do you think? Does that have form? Did it limit me? Or did it facilitate me? So it could be facilitating also. Mm -hmm. But the idea of no formless, it, it, has, it, it gives this feeling of like big, unlimited. Mm -hmm. But is unlimited space the biggest thing? What do you think? What's bigger? To live in a desert? Where you can't see, or let's say ocean. Ocean's big. We'd drop you off in the middle, by yourself on a raft. You're safe, let's say. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll add. It's not going to be a problem. But that, that there, and you get an umbrella, you know, for the shade and supply you with food. But there you are. It's big. There's nobody around. It's big. There's nobody to bother you. Hmm? That's cool. <laughs> it's big, but. Now, what if I take you and I put you with someone else of a like mind? Hmm? And I put you in the hollow of a tree, which is very small. Hmm? Which is bigger? Hmm? The hollow of the tree, in which there is affection, is bigger. By a, bigger by affection. So the forms, for example, of the Godhead that we talk about here, the form of Krishna, we're talking about moving from, I said, peace to love, right? Stillness to movement. We're talking about big, by way of affection. I'm, I'm a tiny particle of consciousness, and I want to have an affectionate, loving relationship with my source. Hmm? I'm infinitesimal. The God it is infinite. Infinitely big, I'm infinitely small, let's say like that. Hmm? Now, if I come before the infinite, how finite am I going to feel? Oh my God, I'll say, I am small. And you, sir, madam, are very big. And there's going to be some distance is going to be created. So if I'm to become close, hmm, the bigness of the Absolute has to be disguised. Hmm? The Absolute has to take a finite-like shape hmm? in order for the 
the finite jiva to intimately associate. This is something about Krishna Lila. It is the play, as I said earlier, the consciousness, uh, the play of consciousness in, uh, expressing itself theatrically. Lila means drama also. In drama, in poetry, and so forth, all kinds of things can happen, right? Leave it to your imagination. There are no, there are no limits. We're struggling because of perceived limits. And we live to break them. We live for the record to be announced that he went one ten thousandth of a second faster than anybody ever did. And it's all over the headlines. He's wearing a golden medal. Hmm? That from the half court, he just threw it and it went in, swish. How is it possible? Hmm? Actually, we're all living for those moments. Hmm? Trying for those moments to exceed the perceived limitations of our body, mind, complex. Hmm? Why? Because we actually are bigger than those, those confines. As small as we are, we're too big for the world. Mm-hmm. We're of another category. We're a subjective, experiential, mm-hmm. a unit of value, meaning, purpose. And the objective world, what's out there, only has as much meaning as we give it, assign to it. So, if we then enter into Leela discussion, we're going to enter into a poetic attempt to talk about what I have been talking about philosophically. Hmm? Movement and transcendence. And the text that we draw from here, the narrative of Krishna's Leela, if you will, is derived from the meditation of Vyas. He was told by Nard, sit in Samadhi, which you have a qualification to do. Not everybody can just sit in Samadhi. Right? From a yogic perspective, Astanga, you have, you have Yama, Niyama. Uh, uh, what is it? Yama, Niyama, Pranayam, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyan, Samadhi. So start with Yama, Niyama. You don't start with Samadhi. Yama, Niyama means, uh, you know, what's right to do and what's, what's wrong to do, uh, what's favorable for yoga, what's unfavorable, accept the former, reject the latter, you got to go through that difficulty, etc., etc., to, to sit in samadhi. Mm. Meditation is actually not something that can be effectively done, mm. or it can only, I should say, be effectively done to the extent that, that you don't have desires in the heart that will cause you to get up mm. and think there's something more important to do. The mind has to be entirely stilled. That means all the vrittis, samskars, vasanas, acquired impressions that are driving us have all been exposed for what they are, cleansed away. Then you can see, so Vyas was like this. He sat in samadhi 
and he meditated on on the concept of Leela, and this is what he came up with hmm, to tell us about. Hmm? And he's telling us that Leela, a play of consciousness, theatrical play of consciousness in transcendence, movements in, movement in transcendence, that represents a penetration into transcendence, of which there are different degrees offered by different disciplines, but a penetration into transcendence wherein you can associate intimately with the Absolute as if you were equals. Hmm. Here, we're talking about the, the idea of Sakya, fraternal love. Hmm. There are other forms of love, like parental love, romantic love, that's also discussed, but here we're talking about that. And in that type of love, the central... Uh, feature of that is sense of equality. Hmm? Friends are equals. Much as you're equal, you can have friendship. You can feel about me exactly as I feel about you. You can't do that in parental love. Hmm? Either side. Hmm? You can't do that in servile love where you have the student and the teacher. You can do it sometimes in romantic love, but... Sometimes not. Mm. This is the feature of this particular form of love that we're in the middle of uh, discussing in the 15th chapter of the 10th canto, where this uh, is the center of several chapters discussing this particular feeling, sentiment. So Krishna had just become a cowherd, hmm? we heard. Hmm. And... and now it becomes a little more theologically complex, and uh, and uh, those who are a little more familiar with with the uh, tradition and so forth will probably be able to draw a little bit more than those who are not. I'm trying to include everybody. It may be too high for some and too low for others, so be patient, whichever end of the spectrum you might be on. <clears throat> so at the end of the 15th chapters we heard last night, um, there's an introduction to what's found uh, in detail in the 16th and the 17th chapter. Chronologically, what's found in the 16th and 17th chapter actually come um, before the main event of the 15th chapter, but it's being recited out of ecstasy and not always out of chronolo chronological order. And the narrator, Sukadev the sage, who was narrating to the king, Raj Parikshit, the emperor, who had given up everything, sit on the bank of the Ganges, and ask, what's the purpose of life? And the sage boy, naked, which meant he had no desires whatsoever, oblivious to his, to his uh, bodily necessities and gender sensibilities and so forth, um, appeared on the scene. And it could be understandable. Well, he's he's not attached. He must know. Attachment is 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 what the problem with death because I can't take anything with me, and I won't, <laughs> my whole sense of I, as I said earlier, is identified with all of the the things that I've got, the, the feelings about them that I have, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the sage spoke, and the pitch of his of his uh, narrative. Uh, reaches its high point here in this uh, 
tenth canto of the Bhagavatam, with with he tells the story of Krishna, right? So everything is not in chronological order, and the 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 Leela narrative of the sixteenth and seventeenth chapter is one that he hesitated to speak about, because the heroism of Krishna, which is a which is a deep and a quality of his. That's that's um, very um, uh, I want to say uh, nourishing to fraternal love. There are different qualities uh, of of Krishna that are described, and and they will be uh, some of them will be more appreciated by sentiment of friendly love or by romantic love, and so forth. So one of them is his heroism, his friends, of course are herding cows with him in the forest, and he's constantly performing miraculous acts, which they think, I could have done that, but okay. It's good that he did it. And they're right. Who are they? That's important, very important, because they are who we are to follow, their example. So, that said, the heroic act that he will perform in the next chapter is, from the narrator's point of view, somewhat disconcerting. Because in the context of telling it, it appears, and it appeared to everyone in, in the Braj who was participating in the Leela, that Krishna might be vanquished. Hmm? And it appeared so for quite some time. Hmm? It's one thing if for a moment it, it appears an adversary has an upper hand and immediately is dealt with. But this, we're talking about the coils of Kaliya for hours. So, so Sugadev was reluctant to speak about it. And before he does speak about it, he's putting it off because of its... How a tender-hearted devotee who loves Krishna and is absorbed in the Leela, not just not thinking theologically, theologically or philosophically, but just absorbed in it, hmm, will feel uh, uh, some uh, trepidation and some anxiety and so forth. He's speaking to another devotee, but she doesn't want to bring that on him, and he himself, hmm, while putting it off. At the end of the fifteenth chapter, when the cowards are coming home from after the dealing with the Denukasura, an adversary of sorts, coming home, beautiful is one of the many beautiful descriptions of the return. The cows are moving in front, and all the cow dust is going up and it's showering back down upon Krishna, and the villagers are seeing the dust, and the clouds are getting out of the way to look at the dust themselves. And the son says, I better set because I'm embarrassed. Mm-hmm. He is the son. Krishna is the son. And the cows are going, you know, with their hooves. They're kicking up the dust to facilitate the earth's attempt to embrace Krishna. On behalf of all of the uh, forest species. Very beautiful. 
and a flute sound. They hear villagers. This is a, this is a very beautiful scene, and and his friends are singing his, chanting his glories and names and so on and so forth. It's a it's a it's a party, and they're celebrating slaying of Danikosur. They're coming to tell a tale that the elders won't believe <laughs> entirely, uh, and so forth. And at that time, Krishna's moving from boyhood to adolescence. So now the devotees who have romantic love for him, they start to come into the picture of the Bhagavatam. Just at the end of the 15th chapter, in a couple of verses, what's called Purvarag is described. It's a type of love, romantic love and separation. When two, like a like an adolescent boy and girl, fall in love, but they, they haven't had the opportunity to say that to one another or know that the other one feels that way. So they feel love, but there's separation from being able to actively participate in it. Hmm. Uh, this is all drawing on Indian aesthetic sensibility, and there are whole texts about Indian aesthetics, which is uh, the medium through which Rupa Goswami chose to explain this form of Vedanta hmm, through aesthetic language. The language uh, and the sensibilities of theater and dramatics. After all, we're speaking about the drama of consciousness, right? Consciousness expressing itself in play dramatically. Hmm. So, this is called Vyasandhi. The 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 sandhyam the the dawn between boyhood and adolescence and Krishna's romantic feelings are coming. So those who have come to the edge of the pasture where it meets the forest to meet Krishna include the young gopis. He sees them from a distance. Subal gives him an elbow. His friend, mm-hmm. that's her, mm-hmm. and Purvarag. So as Sukadev is narrating this. In the, in, the, in the context of his Bhagavat Kirtan, this is a form of Kirtan, mm. reciting the Bhagavat. Mm. Sanatana Goswami tells us, and at this point, Sugadev entered into Swarup Siddhi, means he saw himself in the Leela. Mm. He's narrating it, and he found himself inside, in, in a spiritual form of a young gopi. Hmm? in Gopi Bhav, very tender hmm? heart. Hmm? And the Kaliya Lila, which he's been avoiding to narrate for reasons I already explained, now he has other reasons for not narrating it. Oh my gosh. Hmm? This is, I'm faint of heart to think about it. Hmm? <laughs> but, nonetheless, it is an important uh, Poganda Leela, and there are many, many instructions and insights to draw from it. Hmm? And he's only narrated, you know, like a typical day in the in the boyhood of Krishna, and it's a big subject that, that goes on for, you know, much, much longer, so he, he kind of has to say something about it. Hmm? So, he says a few words. We discussed those last night at the end of the fifteenth fifteenth chapter. Hmm? But what he said 
perked the curiosity of the Raj whom he's speaking to. He said, and then, you know, on another day, typical day, uh, um, in the Pogondalila, really, um, the cowherds herding their cows came upon the lake in the Jamuna, and the cows drank the water, and they died. How can you die in eternity? Remember, it's a drama. Hmm? It's a drama. A drama, reality put into a drama. Hmm? So they died. Hmm? And the cowherds, they drank the water. Oh, are they dumb? Obviously, the cows drank the water and died. There's something wrong with the water. So is this what you want to be? Some dumb coward boy who can't even figure it out that if I drink the water, I'm going to get sick too? No, they didn't drink the water because they were dumb. They drank the water because they were dharmic. They said, we are young boys. We have just given charge of the cows, which is the livelihood of our whole community because we are a nomadic, you know, cow herding community. Hmm? The charge of the cows, the life of the community has been given to us and under our watch, they've died. So we should die. Hmm? If we can't care for the cows, then we don't care. Well, there's no meaning to our lives. Hmm? This was their identification with their, their, their dharma in the context of the leela. Hmm? It's actually a good quality. <laughs> and that's uh, so what Krishna came and revived them. Hmm? Now that has to be played out in the further... Uh, discussion and so forth. But this is what he said um, in trying to briefly speak about the Kaliya Leela without going into it in depth and hopefully going on to the next topic, hmm, skipping over it. Hmm. And Krishna brought them back to life. Hmm. But <laughs> And then he says, that in the beginning of the 16th chapter, he says, Bhulokya dushitam krishnam krishna krishnakina vibhu tasyabhishudhim Abhichan, Abhichan, Sarpam Tam Udavasayat. He says, Vilokya Dushitam Krishna. Krishna. Seeing that the river, this refers to Jamuna, the river running through Braj, big topic. Um, the river is very imp- <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's a, the river is very important. I mean, you just from a um, ecological uh, point of view, hmm? um, you know, the, the 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 river in this area is is very important. It, it, it means reason to have us have a have a, a community there because it's underground water, hmm? sufficient underground water dig wells and survive and so forth. And then it's a means of commerce. You can sail on the river to other parts and the port and and so on. So many practical ways. The Jamun is very uh, central. But, uh, of course, the poets say that Krishna's complexion is dark like blue sapphire. Black but brilliant. Dark but brilliant. Hmm? And the Jamuna is also named Krishna, 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 and Krishna. Mm. 
it means black because it's his perspiration. Hmm. He melted in love and the Jamuna came about. Other depictions of it are that Krishna is non-different from his abode, from the space, if you will, it's a sacred space, as an extension of his own ecstasy. So the Vrindavan is like a, a, a geographical sacred space that is also his body, and the Jamuna is the central nervous system to that body. The Jamuna is compared also to the Sushumna Nadi in our own body. The Sushumna Nadi is a channel that yogis enter into, the Atma of the yogi enters into, and it comes out of the, what is it called? Andrana Chakra. Brahmarandram. Comes out. The Atma. It's a technical uh, description with of subtle the subtle body chakras and so on and so forth. So that, anyway, so the, the you know yogis. One of the things about yoga is, from a astanga yoga point of view, it's a little bit different than what we practice. But from that, uh, one of the objectives is is control, control everything, control the mind, control the senses, control the heart, control every organ in the body. It's a pretty masterful you know type of uh, affair, if you will. Uh, to control the whole body in great detail and then know when you're going to come out or predict it come out. Anyway, so, so, but it's very difficult to practice that yoga. Bhakti yoga is very easy comparatively. Astanga yoga is effort-based. Bhakti yoga is grace-based. We make effort in bhakti. What is the effort? We make effort to get grace. Huh. That's smart. Hmm. We know that the, 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 the absolute, the source of consciousness that we are a particle of, that we want to unite with, is, as I said before, affectionate, graceful, full of grace. Hmm? Right? And power, then. What is the power of grace? If I go to court and... I went to court once, I'll tell you the story, it was a friend of mine who was a practitioner, and he had gotten distracted from the practice for a number of years. And he also got himself in some legal trouble. And I ran into him, and uh, he had case pending. I didn't know about that. I befriended him, of course, and took him in and helped him to restore his practice. Hmm? And after some time, he said, Swami, I wanted to tell you I've got a court date coming up. So I said, well, what's that all about? So he told me it was some some type of, I think, maybe drug offense or something like that. And so I may be convicted and I might, you know, I might not come back tonight. And so I said, well, I think I'll go to the court with you. So I went to the court with him. And the case against him was pretty bad because he had violated his probation. Got lost in his spiritual practice, I guess. Didn't check in <laughs> with the illusory law. Anyway, the pragmatic law. So there I was in my devotional attire, and I was kind of sticking out in the courtroom. 
and the judge was like realized that I'm with this guy. Hmm. So the the prosecutor made the case, you know, that this guy should go to jail, you know. And so the and he didn't have a lawyer. He had what 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 they call those, you know, public defender. You know, anything. They sleep through the case, you know. So. So the judge, before making a verdict, he said, "And sir, do you have anything to say that you want to say?" He turned to me. So I stood up. I said, "Yes." I, I said, "Your Honor, I think he's the guilty, and the prosecutor is right, in in all respects." However, I said, he's been living with me for several months, and this is who I am, this is what I do, and this is what he was doing there. And although he's guilty, he's actually on a track for eternal reformation. I don't put it like that, perhaps. But anyway, I said, so by justice, which you have the right to determine what's just and what's not, he's guilty. But you also have grace, and you can give mercy. And mercy can override justice. That's what it does. There has to be justice for there to be mercy, because mercy is the overriding of justice. So I plead that you be merciful, given his what I've said about him. And the judge said, okay, you go with him. Let him go. He showed his grace. So there's power in grace. Power. Mm-hmm. Much more power than we have on our own. Much What to speak of, the power derived from our mental, intellectual, or physical prowess, all of which is a product of our own illusion. What power does that have? What currency is that for purchasing real estate in a realm beyond death, where there's no death, when all those things have to die? Hmm? So to rely upon them hmm, for overcoming samsara in a very effort-based method, it's very difficult. Therefore, the teaching in the Bhagavad is, yes, you can do yoga, stanga yoga. It's not that easy, but you can do it. But if you have to add a little bhakti, you have to have a little grace in order for it to be fully efficacious. Hmm? You can do jnana, but you need a little grace, a little bhakti, for it to be efficacious. So what's the teaching? Well, why not do all bhakti? <laughs> That's all efficacious. Why not make an effort to get grace? That makes sense. Like a child, just position yourself. I was a kid. We used to ice skate. This was three quarters of a century ago, or more than that, <laughs> more than much more than that, actually. So we used to go and skate on the pond, and we were in, lived in a little village. There weren't many people there, but there was a couple of older kids. My brother and I were the same age, and these older guys would pick on us. You know, that's, uh, so. Uh, but we really liked to go and skate. So we'd have to watch out if they were there or what, you know. So one day my father came with us to skate. So then we could skate around them, like, you know, and make faces at them and so forth. We didn't change. Our position didn't change. But we had another power, right? <laughs> a higher power by association. Well, this is very smart, <laughs> right? So, this idea of bhakti, right? To attract the grace, the sympathy of Krishna, and he has unlimited sympathy, unlimited uh, grace, 
the capacity to very affectionate, as we said. Leela means his expression of his own affection, right, in relation to his devotees. So, so that Jamuna, from a yogic, subtle body perspective, also microcosmically in the yoga body, represents the Susumna Nadi, by which you can. The, the 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 channel for leaving the world hmm, through the uh, Ramarandram chakra uh, chakra top of the head hmm. there you go yeah I should read you something here for a moment bear with me Let's see if I have it here we're talking about the Jamuna for the devotees in bhakti yoga rather than sitting in as we do in astanga yoga they're active they're moving right largely they're dancing singing it's a form of yoga and and they're singing about this brajlila of krishna so there are descriptions of 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 the sacred geography, and of course the Jamuna is included there, and so forth. In Brihad Bhagavatamrita, a section of which I rendered, I was going to read to you, we have the story of Gopakumar, who's, who's meditating on Braj, and falls into the Jamuna. He gets the darshan of Krishna, chases after him, and Krishna disappears. He falls into the Jamuna, and the Jamuna takes him to Goloka, to the Aprakat. Uh, hmm. So, yeah, hmm. it's a channel. It's the central nervous system of Krishna's body. Hmm. You come out, <laughs> come out here and meet him. Hmm. Something like that. It's it's a way of saying again that the bhakti is more user user friendly. It's easy to swim in the Jamuna <laughs> compared to. Uh, there's a little more to it than that, but <laughs> compared to the, the the yogic effort and so forth. So this Jamuna is very important in the, in the life of the Brajbasis and many leelas surrounding it and so forth. Many many astakams, prayers about the Jamuna, as there are about other features of the sacred geography that are all parts or props, conscious props in the in the drama of Krishna Leela. Right. So here, the the jamuna is mentioned because it was said at the end of the last chapter that what the, they, they drank the water from the jamuna. So he says, "Below kadushitam krishnam." He says, uh, "They uh, seeing the contaminated jamuna, Krishna is used here. Krishna referring to the dark river." Seeing the the contamination of the jamuna, so the, the jamuna formally is brought into the into the text here. <clears throat> Krishna, who who is referred to as Vibhu, this is describing a very human-like. It looks it sounds very provincial, but it's supposed to be the highest reality. So he reminds us this is a play. He says Vibhu. Vibhu means this is the ultimate reality, the supreme Godhead. Hmm? 
Keep that in mind. Appearing in human-like situation, that there might be a possibility of intimacy and love with him. In this context here, in the fraternal type. There are other types, but this is what we're talking about here. So, Krishna, Krishnahina Vibhu, Tasya Vishuddham Avichan Sarpam Tam Udavasayat. He says that hmm, Vibhu, Krishna, who is, who, is, who is the god of himself in drama, seeing the Jumuna had been contaminated by the black snake Kaliya, hmm, desired to purify the river, and thus he banished him from it. Sugadev would like to stop there. Hmm. But now the Raj will force him by his eagerness to tell the whole story. Hmm. And it's going to go over two whole, two whole chapters. What's that all about? How, who's Kaliya? How did he poison the Jamuna? Where did he come from? And so forth. So Kaliya is a, is a, in the drama, he's a Naga. Nagas are uh, popular in uh, you can find it in Buddhist text also they're they're associated with the earth and a sense of the underworld uh and uh and so uh, uh serpents who live underground and gems on their head which you find underground and have light uh, it's complicated but the naga people <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh, this character Kaliya is, is a naga. They're like serpents, but they also have, have uh, 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 some some they're kind of zoomorphic, you know. They're, they're partly human, partly serpent-like. Hmm. Um, uh, in the context of the Leela, kind of emphasis on the serpent part, and context of our. Rationality emphasis on the human part. There are humans that are like snakes. You snake. That snake. Black snake. <laughs> right? So, so he's, a, he's an evil character of sorts. Not entirely, we'll see. It's very peculiar how Krishna deals with Kaliya. Different than every other adversary who, is, who are emissaries, henchmen, Kamsa's, you know, emissaries. Kali is not that, but he's he's problematic. He's poisoned the Jamuna. Hmm? Where did he come from? How did he get there? So forth. So there's a there's a history of that that's related in the in the in the, in the, in the next chapter, but uh, it's uh, relevant to mention it briefly here, and I'll try to wrap this up this part of the narrative. So so Kaliya, he was. Uh, um, um, living in another area, and there's a long history between Kaliya and a very extraordinary Vaishnav figure in Alila, Garuda. Hmm? Garuda is popular uh, in Indonesia and in Thailand and in India. Even the uh, part of the emblem of the of, of the of each of those nations, Garuda, is found. He's a very uh, prominent figure in the sacred texts. Of the Hindus, including the Vedas, Upanishads, the Puranas, um, and so forth, his name Garuda derives from the verbal Sanskrit root "gri," which means to speak, 
Oh, he's thought to be the personification of mantras, um, and uh, in some texts, the personification of the Atma, the Self. Hmm? In Gaudiya uh, theology of Jiva Goswami, he's considered to be a Nityasiddha Tatasta Jiva. Tatasta means like us, who's subject to this illusion, but could live on the other side in Leela. He's of that nature, but never been on this side. Nitya said, always on that side. It means he he's exemplifies the fact that we could live on that side. Those of our nature, Tatas Shakti, can live in, within the Leela under the influence of the Sarup Shakti, the heat and light. It's possible. We're so we're inspired by Garuda, as an example, right? And he's the carrier of Vishnu and Krishna in Dwaraka. His chariot has the flag with Garuda as the emblem on there. A great Vaishnav. But Garuda is the son of, I think, Vinata, whose sister Kadru was the the mother of the Nagas, Lata Nagas. And um, she, her sister had prayed for a hundred sons, and Vinata prayed for two who would be more powerful than a hundred. Uh, uh, so, so uh, hundred sons she had from eggs, right? And then and Vinata had two. That's a long story. But Bruta was one of the two, very powerful. But by circumstances in his youth, he was harassed by those other. Nagas. Mm-hmm. He got psychologically traumatized mm-hmm, in his youth. And so, as a, as a bird, he ate fish, but he also added snakes to his diet. Mm-hmm. And so, he harassed Garuda, this Kaliya, a particular Naga, and uh, Garuda put him in his place. And so, to get away from Garuda, he went to the Jamuna hmm, in Vrindavan. Why did he go there? Because previously, Garuda had a history with the Jamuna and was living there hmm, prior to Krishna's Leela manifesting. Hmm. And living there, um, he would eat fish from the Jamuna. Now there was a Rishi, a Muni, who was meditating under the water, pretty controlled. Hmm for a long time. And he was upset with Garuda eating fish because he had a sense of nonviolence and he thought, this is violent. Hmm. So he cursed Garuda. Hmm. If you eat another fish, I give a curse or you will die. Garuda was not at all affected by the curse, but rather than fight with the guy, he said, have your own way, I've got other things to do, and he flew away. Right? Hmm. That kind of curse, actually, given by the Muni, constituted an offense to the great Vaishnav Garuda, who was not practicing the Jain form of Ahimsa. You think you got to wear a mask? You troubled with that? We wouldn't have a problem if we were all Jains. They're all wearing masks all the time so that they don't breathe insects accidentally. And so they're very, so nonviolence is, and I'm not criticizing, I'm saying nonviolence is very central 
an extreme and overt sense um, to uh, Jainism. Nonviolent is also, ahimsa is also advocated in the Gita and the Bhagavatam, and it's part of our tradition, but it's, it's a, it's a, the Bhagavatam uses a term, uh, nahi, oh, I, I can't remember exactly the Sanskrit, but it's, it's a practical um, type of nonviolence. Hmm? It's, it, that's not center, central to our, our practice, practice is, is chanting. So, I mean, Garuda was a bird, he had to eat fish, you know, I mean, <laughs> so it, it's, it, for him it, it was not, uh, he was practicing, um, you know, practical nonviolence. So the, the Rishi, the point is the Rishi didn't understand the Vaishnava, Vaishnava Kriyamudra Abuja, and it's difficult to understand the Vaishnava because if I sit like this for eight hours a day, you might think, that guy knows something. Hmm? If I just walk around and say, what, what are you, what's cooking? What's happening here? Go there. Hmm. You think he's like us. You know, nothing special. But what's driving that asking, talking, walking? Hmm. Hmm. If it's only for the, out of love for Krishna and everything, then it's difficult to recognize. Looks like an ordinary person. Krishna looks like an ordinary boy. Difficult to recognize. Hmm? So the Muni, despite his <coughs> pursuit of enlightenment, which is very difficult to attain, mukti, what does the Gita say? Manushyanam sahasreshu kaschidyata desidaye yatatam apisidhanam kaschinmam veti tattvata One out of a thousand will be interested in this. Out of a thousand of those, one will take it up. Out of a thousand of those, one might be successful. Mm. That's not a cheap thing. It's not meant to discourage you. It's meant to say, why not choose something that's really worth attaining? It puts everything, every other goal to shame, even if it's difficult. Mm. Mm. And it's about you. It's about what you are and your prospect. Mm. Of course, with the help of grace, it becomes easy comparatively, right? So that's the smart route to take. So the Muni was making his effort. I mean, he was underwater. Garuda was just eating fish, but he was a Vaishnava. So Vaishnava, he had difficulty understanding. So he cursed him. Why did he curse him? He, his sense of nonviolence came from what we call Parabdha Karma, of a sattvic nature. Parabdha Karma is the karma that's manifesting now in your life, from what you've done in the past. There's karma that hasn't yet manifest, that's in a seed form. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you practice, in spiritual practice, you can do away with the karma that hasn't manifest yet, so that it doesn't manifest. But to do away with the karma that's already manifesting, it's like trying to stop a cold once it already manifests. You could do things beforehand to prevent preventative, but once it's manifest, then by yoga, by gyan, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to wait it out. Bhakti, by contrast, in power, has the power to, to even eradicate parabdha karma. Hmm. So that's very extraordinary. But in parabdha karma of a sattvic nature, I mean, sattva means like goodness, purity, and so forth. Hmm. To be pure from a worldly point of view, honest and uh, austere and, uh, and clear-headed and so compassionate and so forth. So this Prabhupada karma in a yogi will cause him or her to be compassionate. 
So he had compassion for the fish, but in the context of expressing compassion for the fish, he didn't understand the position of a Vaishnava and offended him. So what happened was, he fell down from his yoga. Hmm? It's a long story. And all the fish died. How did they die? After he cursed Garuda, Garuda left. He said, I'm not going to argue with this guy. <laughs> he doesn't understand what spiritual life is. He's off. Hmm? Meanwhile, the, the Rishi, he fell down from his yoga and became a worldly person hmm? as a result of the offense. And Kaliya, being a little bit dense, heard that Garuda is no longer at the Jamuna. So I'll go there. And Garuda, not Garuda, Kaliya, Kaliya, did I say Kaliya? Kaliya, Kaliya thought, I'll go there. Hmm? Get away from Garuda, because he's been cursed by that guy, so he'll never come there. He doesn't understand the position of Garuda either. And he's envious of Garuda from previously, so he has Vaishnav Aparad, fence in his background, which is like poison, and he brought the poison to the Jamuna, and all the fish died in this pool within the Jamuna. Hmm? So Sukadeva has told Pariksit Marsh, this Kaliya came, and, and, he, and the Raj wants to know the whole story. I'm kind of coming out with a little bit. We bring Garuda into the picture. And this is a story then that was around for a long, long time. And young Krishna and Balaram had heard the story. They had heard the story. Hmm? And day after day after day, Krishna thought, I will go and, and save the Jamuna. Just a section of the Jamuna. It was a little south so that the poison current wasn't coming into the village itself. But still, if any part of the Jamuna to be contaminated, he couldn't, he couldn't tolerate that. So he's just young, but he's thinking, I will perform a heroic act and save the Jamuna and so forth. But his mother said, now will you make sure, she told Balaram, don't let his older brother, don't let him go to that lake where the Kaliya is, that's a place we don't go. You can go here and there, but you can't go there. That's not... Hmm? But, you, but you think about something long enough, you're going to do it. So nothing could check him, right? And one day, as the story goes, for other reasons, out of parental affection for Balaram, he was, he was locked up at home in the embrace of elders on the day celebrating an auspicious day in the life of, 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 of Ram, hmm? Krishna's brother. So Krishna immediately went, this is my opportunity. Balaram's not there to say, don't go to the Jumla. So he went. Hmm? And ahead of him went the cows, ahead of him went the cowards. As we heard at the end of the last chapter, they drank the water and they died. Hmm? And then he revived them. Hmm? That's to be continued. Hmm? There's much, much more to the story, but I take, appreciate your time and patience for listening. Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam. What's the time? 801. 801, okay. All right, we'll stop there. Okay.